All right, you ready to talk about this? I mean, Starship Down? Yeah, this was a nice episode. This is definitely one of those, you know, it reminded me some a little of Bounce of Terror 2, where it's a, uh, as well as Disaster from TNG, of course, where it's, you know, this isn't a very plot-heavy episode. We have a little bit about, you know, the larger plot, but for the most part, like, the fact that it's Jem'Hadar is almost incidental to this episode. Um, it's This is a very heavy character episode about them just in a major problem and uh, similar also to the Attention Bajoran Workers one. Uh, yeah, Civil Defense. Yes, you know, where it's it, – as a full plot disaster movie episode, I really liked this one. I think this is an interesting episode, you know, kind of what it says for what Deep Space Nine is about and what its kind of motivations and and the kind of stories that it wants to tell. Because it is very similar to Disaster, you're right. But if you recall, Disaster was an episode of TNG that was predicated on the idea that the Starship Enterprise was uh, disabled by, uh, I think, some sort of quantum singularity yeah it's it's just a natural disaster right whereas this episode while again the defiant is very badly injured by by the gem hadar and it is very conceptually similar to disaster because you've got different pairings of characters that don't necessarily spend a lot of time together you know in places that they can't necessarily leave right then uh it's very different because this is a much more it's a much more action heavy episode. It's much more focused on, you know, telling a story about these characters getting into the situation primarily because of actions that they're taking. Yeah. Whereas disaster was very much just a, Hey, something weird is happening. We got to figure it out. They, they slipped on some ice and crashed. That's essentially what that episode is. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I think you can make the argument that, Cisco in this episode is is perhaps not making the correct choice at least initially hmm. by by deciding to go after the Jem'Hadar. You know, one this is a question that I've been wanting to ask you for a while now that we're you know over a season into the big reveal of yeah. the Jem'Hadar and the Dominion and you know that whole the plot, plot of this show, yeah. right? That and there's so much more to come. You have no idea that is this. Does it make sense for? them to continue to want to tell stories in the Gamma Quadrant when they have this entire meta plot of galactic politics and war going on. Yeah, I mean, there have been a few too many times where they go into it a little more casually than, like, going into the Gamma Quadrant should be as big of a deal as going into the neutral zone, for example. Right. Anytime in TNG or, you know, whatever, they would go into the neutral zone. It was uh, the demilitarized zone, actually, or whatever. Anytime they go into... It was the neutral zone. Anytime they do that, it's a big deal they have to sneak in they they know that if they will get caught it will be major problems and you know there have been moments where they have gone into the gamma quadrant that they have made big but this didn't feel big enough you know i i think so yeah because you know yes of course they're no longer sending runabouts into the gamma quadrant by themselves or or are they because i feel like they did that a couple weeks ago but anyway uh you know when they're doing something like this they are now sending the big guns they're sending the defiant they're sending the warship that the federation has and, you know, Cisco is obviously in command of it because this is a big deal. They're, yeah. they're sending their A-team whenever they go into the Gamma Quadrant now because they know that shit could get real very quickly. And, of course, shit does get real very quickly in this episode. And they kind of vaguely mention it a couple times before where they talk about, you know, the, the, the Starfleet and the Federation's desire not to just just hands off in the entire Gamma Quadrant because they don't feel like the Dominion has 
control over the entire Gamma Quadrant. You know, they don't have, they're not allowed yeah. to just unilaterally say that we cannot come through the wormhole. And that's all fine and good. But it does raise questions about the strategic nature of their contact with races in the Gamma and Quadrant. I, mean, I want to be honest. I mean, so so Deep Space Nine happens to be right at the gate to the wormhole, but tactically that's obviously a very good thing for them. You know, they know that's you know, Deep Space Nine is the first line of defense. You know, that's been the entire reason for all the training they did between seasons and all of that. The Dominion has no presence outside their end of the wormhole though, and you would think that you know, it would not be – in other words, it's not like they're strapped for resources or anything. Like, I'm surprised they haven't built, you know, a deeper Space Nine, you know, that's – or some well, kind of a base or, you know, why aren't there Jem'Hadar ships patrolling the area? Like – Well, it seems like there might be. Yeah. I mean, we don't know exactly how far into the Gamma Quadrant they went in Starship Down, yeah, that's number one. True. You know, I don't – I mean, space is very big and, of course, Star Trek is, is, a, is a very sort of um, – it's a different type of science fiction show in that it posits that space is much more like flying around on Earth than it yeah. is. Because, you know, space tends to be as big as it needs to be for the plot. Exactly. And and so, you know, I think there's much more of an I mean, I just I just finished watching the first season of The Expanse, for instance, which is this new science fiction space opera television show on on Siffy. And <laughs> while it was OK, I didn't love it, but it, it is very much posited on the idea that space is a lot larger, even in yeah. our own solar system than we understand it to be. So, you know, distances are large and they don't necessarily just kind of come across things all the time by themselves. Yeah. Un- unless they're on a trade route or something, which would make sense. You know, if you're if, if something happens to your ship, you know, ships probably would keep to the same routes all the time because you wouldn't necessarily just want to go blasting yeah. off on your own when you're, you know, hundreds of light years away from, you know, help, for example. But anyway. Yeah. And so, I mean, we've seen episodes which deal with the consequences of those kind of trips. Right. And, you know, so, so I think that the question is an interesting one. I, I, I do, I will posit that, and I'm not saying this is, this is right or wrong, but I will posit the idea that the Dominion is much less interested in the, the traditional trappings of a galactic nation state as we have understood them in Star Trek. You know, they don't they don't seem to really care all that much about diplomatic, you know, missions. They don't seem to care that much about exchanging ambassadors. You know, they don't really even seem to care about having much of a functioning government. You know, it's more just it's almost much more akin to the mob or something where, you know, they're approaching planets and saying, hey, nice planet you got here. Wouldn't want anything to happen yeah. to it. You know, and so they're not really cons- I don't I don't really get a sense that they're that concerned with the day to day operations of Dominion planets. I don't really get a sense that they're that concerned about keeping an I quote unquote on the wormhole. Oh, that's fair. You know, they they just they they more just don't want the Federation there full stop. And I don't necessarily think that the Dominion is only as interested in the Federation and other, you know, species because they have to be, not necessarily because they they feel that it's necessary for their protection. Yeah, and I guess there's a degree to which I mean at this point, Starfleet, the Federation, have been infiltrated by Dominion. So it's not like the Dominion is standing around and doing nothing, you know? And well, we don't know that Starfleet or the Federation have been infiltrated. Um, the, the whole we are everywhere implies that. It implies it, yes. Um, but when it inevitably turns out that people in the fit in Starfleet are, are, be, are revealed as Dominion, I will not be surprised. Yeah. Um, again, you know, I mean, I mean, that was the season finale and you know that's the anytime you have a shape-shifting plot that's obviously going to be part of where you go with it because you know yeah it only makes sense to that's 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 the advantage of putting a shape-shifter yeah absolutely um 
Yeah, the Dominion is more interested in control than territory or resource or anything like that. I mean, it it really it it really seems to me that the entirety of the structure of the Dominion and the reason for its existence is primarily to protect the founders' homeworld. It's it seems primarily uh, it, it's I would say more. It's it seems primarily to to dominate. I mean, again, it's in the name. You know the. I don't know. I don't know. I, don't know. I, mean, I feel like the Founders' homeworld, you know, yes, it's to protect the homeworld, the Dominion's interests, the Founders' interests, the uh, Changeling's interests. But it's doing that not by allying, not by helping other, but by completely controlling. Again, remember, it's, well, it's, I think it's, it's guard dogs are the Jem'Hadar, which it has, you know, it, it has made dependent on this chemical and this drug. I mean, the the... I think that's a symbol for how the Dominion wants to control everything. I oh mean. yeah, absolutely. And you know, I do want to. I do want to say that I don't think that either of those ideas are mutually exclusive. That's fair. I think that the Dominion can very much be about you know keeping keeping the riffraff away from from the founders, while at the same time the the method by which they're keeping the riffraff yeah. away from the founders is by domination and control yes. and 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 the Jem'Hadar. Yeah, yeah. I think both of those things are accurate. Yeah, or in you know. Again, it's you know I find that they, for example, the way that they dealt with the Ferengi was to give them a job. Essentially, um, I mean the 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 and this species you know that we you know have the Karema, the Karema. Have we seen them before? I believe we've seen them in one episode before. Okay, um, you know, but but we assume that they were probably became part of the Dominion in a similar way to how the Ferengi became part of the Dominion. Yes, I would think so, but well, the Frankie aren't part of the Dominion. But I mean, they they certainly are working with them in order to get trade. And I mean, this. I mean, I, I think first, it's, I it's think the it's an first open... step. It's a very first step. I mean, you know, we are seeing the Karema after the Dominion have been in their quadrant for so long. You know, fast forward a hundred years, I think it would be. You know, I think the Dominion would be happy if the Ferengi were to take that role in the Alpha Quadrant. I don't necessarily know that the – I mean this is getting kind of far afield, but I don't necessarily know that the Dominion cares that much about which planets are in in the Dominion, right? Unless, yeah, 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 yeah. Unless they have resources or something that they need. And I think that's kind of what you see in this episode. You know, and, and of course some of my knowledge of this – I mean I'm, I'm, kind, of, later, I'm yeah. kind of arguing with you a little bit here just because I kind of have a better conception of how the Dominion works and than you fair. do. But – you know, and and right now, I, again, right now it seems like it doesn't really want any obstacles. It was really easy to get rid of the Ferengi being an obstacle. Uh, you know, in some other cases, certainly, yes, the Federation—they're going to have to do something more elaborate. You know, they they were the you know, the Cardassians and the Romulans turned out to be easier to knock out of the way. So it's it does appropriate for a shape shifting species. It, it does change its tactics to fit the species. Sure. But, you know, the Ferengi contacted the Dominion. The Ferengi sought them out. And so, you know, they're just kind of on their doorstep. Well, what are we going to do with them? Well, you know, yeah, let's see if they'll work for us. And, you know, if they're doing that, then, you know, we barely had to lift a finger. I think it's, yeah, I kind of want to move away from this because I don't know that it's yeah. really all that relevant to this episode. Yeah, we but, are kind of spitballing. But I think that, that, you know, one of the things about this episode in particular is that, I mean, and again, you know, that's kind of an interesting juxtaposition to how the Federation works because the Federation doesn't really change their tactics to fit the different alien species that much. 
you know, they're they're pretty much they're like, hey, we're here. Like, yeah. you guys are cool and we're cool. Like, we'll help you out. And, you know, you can, you know, and that's pretty much what they do. We respect you and whatever. And, you know, and that's they don't, you know, they treat the Cardassians and the Romulans and the Klingons and everybody pretty much the same. They think if you're nice enough to somebody for long enough time, it'll you'll eventually wear them down. Which, you know, could be. I don't know. I mean, I would say that the Star Trek verse definitely believes that. Yes, no, I would I would agree with that. This going in with the series general optimism and uh respect and redefinition of life. Again, this is a darker. This is certainly the Federation coming up against an enemy that it can't nice away. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't think this is going to end with, you know, well the way for the Federation to conquer the dominion is just to you know go into the you know completely bomb the gamma quadrant you know it's not like they're ever going to you know right right they're not going to do that um well yeah and i think that that you know we can we can kind of dispense i mean i think it's it it will make sense to talk about each one of these plot threads through the individual characters as well and i feel like yeah i think part of the reason we are talking a little more about the overarching stuff is oddly enough because this episode doesn't have that much of it i mean there is a Again, I said the Jem'Hadar were kind of incidental to this episode. It would very, it would be very similar if it had just been random antagonistic species. You know, this could be the Romulans. This could be the Klingons. This could be, you know. But it, that does speak to how Deep Space Nine yes. is handling its more serialized elements. Of course. And you I know, think we, we've seen that before in episodes where, you know, for example, the episode from, from the third season, I, I forget the name of it, but where a visionary where, um, you know, O'Brien is going back and forth yes. in time. And it turns out that the Romulans are there to yeah, do yeah, you yeah. Know, whatever it is. But it's tying into the meta plot very nicely in a way and I, that, and that was, I TNG mean, never did. It was more satisfying that it is dealing with one of the big enemies again even just to know that you know we're still dealing because we hadn't really spent that much time dealing with the founders of the Jemadar in the past couple episodes yeah yeah just you know we are still in early days of the season so they are just kind of putting stuff out there so i think that that maybe what you know what we can move on to is talking specifically about the quark and i think his name is hannock yeah uh because i think james cromwell character yes because i think it does actually tie in nicely to what we were talking about earlier with the ways in which the Dominion take control yeah. and the ways in which the Alpha Quadrant is dealing with them. Because, of course, you know, their whole... The whole storyline there is, of course, the driving force of what the entire episode yeah. is about. And it speaks a lot to what Star Trek is about. You know, the, the Define is there because the Ferengi were sort of navigating a business relationship between the Federation and the Karema. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and Quark was skimming off the top and Quark wow. thought they were idiots and Quark thinks everyone is an idiot. And, you know, what happens, of course, is that the Jem'Hadar find them, the the Harema are trying to, you know, go essentially go behind the Dominion's back and make a little money. Yeah. And that turns out to be a bad decision. But at the end of the day, you know, Quark and Hannock get into this, you know, room and they 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 get stuck there. Yeah. And then the the you know torpedo comes flying through the room and they're able yeah. to work together. And it, you know, it's a very sort of on the nose message about. But I like the fact that it does turn it on its head a little bit mm-hmm. because it's not that they're suddenly deciding to be altruistic to each other and and agree to you know give each other back rubs and, and yeah and stuff. It's it's more about. You know, Quark is influencing Hannock to to be a little bad, essentially. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting that this is one of a... You know, they are similar to the Ferengi in that they are a mercantile species. They are, you know, doing trades. And yet, you know, at least based on, you know, what he says, they they 
believe in, you know, ethical trade as opposed to the Ferengi who, you know, we know what their trade. <laughs> you know, I mean, this episode makes it very clear. You're going to try and screw them for every penny you can get them. Meanwhile, the uh, Karema, be- you know, seem to believe, or at least this one does, that, you know, they have a slow and steady wins the race kind of view of things. You right. Know? We're always going to be ethical. You know we'll always be fair. You know, the, the, uh, frankly, as, as you say, they're going behind the Dominion's back on this one. So this is, you know, them having a learning a lesson, you know, as they're doing it almost. Um, and, you know, Cork is the one who's espousing risk and, you know, greed. And, you know, you see an opportunity, you get it. And... You know, frankly, it is that sense of risk that, you know, saves the day because, you know, the the, the James Cromo character wants to just stay there. Oh, we'll find someone else to do it. And Quark's like, well, we got to do something now. Right, and, right. You know, yeah, we have a, you know, 50% shot of, you know, picking the right one is better than nothing. So we might as well. And that turns out to be obviously what saves them. And well, and too, I, I, I think that it, you know, the fact that, that Hannock and Quark are the ones that, you know, I mean, because let's be clear, I think that they are in as much as anybody is. I mean, Worf of course also saves the day to some yeah. degree, but, but you know, if that torpedo went off, the entire ship would have been destroyed and they would have all been killed. And well, it's so the, it's the kind it, of episode. Well, it with, speaks, it's, yeah. sorry, I don't want to cut you oh. off, but it, it speaks to DS nine's expansive nature about treating all the different alien yeah. races and all the characters with with equal respect, really. Yeah, I, mean, I don't think that TNG would have ended with a Ferengi saving the day. That's fair, um, you know. A- a- and I think it's interesting how Dax and Bashir really don't do anything. You know, they yeah again the they other get stuck in a closet. Yeah, you know, War- Worf does you know things, and you know, O'Brien is in you know Worf's subplot is very interesting. Well, actually, we, we will definitely we'll talk, talk about, about Worf's yeah. subplot in a second, but you know, this is an episode with a lot of moving parts, and you know, the whole you know the Kira and Cisco thing. Neither you know all Kira does is keep him awake, you know, which is of course an extremely crucial sure you know thing for Cisco's survival in that, and you know, well, let's I mean, yeah, let let's talk about because I don't know that there's much else to say about about. Quark. And Hannock. I really, you know, I liked it. It was funny. It had a nice, reminded me of the whole Kira and Ducat when they yeah, yeah. laugh over the spine. You know, they, you know, Quark and this guy, you know, begin to make jokes to each other, and that's when they start to work together. Right. And I like that it ends with Davo because, you know, anytime you get to end with Davo. I, I think that the, the, the Cisco and Kira plot is very interesting, more mm. for what it sets up for the future, because there has been this strange undercurrent throughout the show where Kira and Cisco, you know, she says very explicitly that they don't talk about anything yeah. but work in this episode, and they don't. You know, you never see them hanging out. It you was, never really see them doing anything aside from working. And yeah, it was the kind. It was the kind of moment where you know. She's realizing that as she's having the conversation as well, and it's yeah. clicking for my mind. Like, yeah, that is true. Like, you know, certainly the two of them respect each other and, you know, have risked their lives for each other several times, you know, at this point are extremely loyal to each other. But it doesn't until they're really dealing with it that, though, they don't really have a personal relationship. And that's a little odd. And they both, I think it, it's, it slots in nicely for two reasons. Number one, because it does set up something nice for the future. It does make the characters out to be a little less self-aware than they perhaps think yeah. they are. But also, I think it slots in nicely to the ways in which the, the actors have been playing the characters and the yeah. way that the show has been developing that relationship. Because suddenly, it clicks for both Cisco and Kira that they perhaps have subconsciously been holding yeah. each other at arm's length in a personal way. And it clicks for the audience as well. You know, it totally makes sense if you think back to 
all of the different episodes yeah. that Kira and Cisco have been in that they really don't talk about personal things that much. They yeah. really don't. I mean, think back to um, uh, a couple episodes ago when the subplot about Cisco deciding whether or not to live with or not to live with um, Cassidy, but for yeah, her to yeah, move yeah, to yeah. the station. Um, that you know, it wasn't Kira sitting there. It was it was Dax, and it was and it yeah. was Bashir. You know, they don't really get involved in each other's lives to that degree. I mean, certainly in an episode like Life Support with with um, Beryl dying, yeah. and Cisco is there. Yeah, but he's not giving her any real advice. She's not really going to him for comfort. And so this episode, I think, is really interesting because yeah, I mean, it was it makes them both. I think they both realize in this episode. Kira yeah. realizes it before Cisco, of course, because Cisco is is she, she know, doesn't have a brain injury, off, yeah. yeah, fighting off a concussion. But she realizes that they don't really have a relationship. That she is, you know, perhaps she. I mean, it's both of their faults, which yeah. I think is interesting. She's kind of maybe treating him with a little bit more reven, you know, uh, 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 reverence, reverence than than. He is comfortable with. Yeah. And that is sort of it's a feedback loop, essentially, where she's treating him with reverence. He's uncomfortable with it. So he's keeping her at arm's length and she's sensing that from him. And so she's kind of keeping him at arm's length. And it's nobody's at fault here. It's not a bad relationship, but it's just something they both realize they're doing. I mean, I thought it was very interesting that it begins with, you know. She says she's fasting for this, you know, holiday about the emissary. I mean, this must be a three year old holiday at this point yeah you know like this is the third or fourth time that it's even being celebrated and i mean how you know cisco is very much the kind of person who would be uncomfortable with a parade in his honor let alone a religious holiday in which he's the star i mean you know that that's a very you know a weird Cisco thing. didn't seem to be comfortable getting promoted. I mean, you know, so it's yeah. kind of like I mean, put it this way, you know, we're 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 told that part of the reason he's they're going on this mission at this exact moment is so he can be as far away from Bajor during this period of time yeah. as he can. Yeah. Yeah. Um I think it's interesting because it's kind of a a a, a different way that the show is developing his relationship with the Bajoran people because yeah. I think early on in the first couple of seasons, maybe two and a half seasons or so, his primary way that he was dealing with the emissary stuff was by ignoring it. Yeah. And now he can't really ignore it anymore. So he's starting to sort of run away from it. Yeah. Like, you know, that, you know, Kai Wynn invited him to Bajor for this week, you know? Yeah. Uh, reluctantly on her part, but you know, she had to. And so that's why I think the, the button scene at the end of the episode is so nice, you know, because it's just kind of like, hey, let's let's have a good time. Let's go to a baseball game. You yeah. Know? And, and, you know, I love when Cisco lets his hair down. Ha ha. Because he doesn't have any hair anymore. But, you know, I, I like when he does that because Avery Brooks plays that sort of, you know, yeah. ch- like ch- he's like childlike happy. Like he just, you know, he wants to share this with her and, yeah. she's, and she's happy about it too. It's a and nice moment for them. You know, that's the, and yeah, baseball is such an important, you know, metaphor in or motif in the show, but that is how Cisco expresses intimacy. I mean, it's, it was the thing that he connects with his son with. It's been the thing that connected him to Cassidy Yates. And so, you know, him sharing with Kira is bringing him, you know, it, it is very literally saying, you know, you need to be brought to that level of intimacy because, you yeah. you know, at this point, again, you know, the, she is his first, you know, and they do, you know, they, first officer, first not, officer. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's make that a little clear. Uh, 
you know, just as it took, you know, Riker and Picard a little while to 100% yeah. grow yeah. to each other, you know, this is them at that point realizing, you know, no, we really do need to, you know, they're, they're at the point when they realize, you know, we've been working together long enough that our, our, our friendship deserves a deeper level. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And uh, and then finally, I think we have we have the Wharf and O'Brien and the engineers. Yeah. I think that maybe this is the first time that Worf has actually been they've they've really consciously been trying to integrate him into the show in a way. I think that yeah, you know, and he's still very, this is still very early days for Worf. You know, we're still what six or seven or eight episodes into this season, so it's not like it's been on that much. Um, but it's it's a I think it's a good plot line for Worf because it shows the way forward for him to fit into this version of Star Trek. Yeah, and you know. I like that O'Brien's the one who, you know, tells him because O'Brien is one of the few people on the ship who can speak so bluntly to Worf. And yeah. Worf, you know, Worf doesn't even question the place that it's coming from, you know, because they served on the Enterprise together, you know. O'Brien made the adjustment, and O'Brien knows the exact adjustment Worf is going through. And what I really like about it is that Worf adjusts very quickly. He doesn't, you know, fight O'Brien's advice. He doesn't get upset at the fact that he's being criticized or anything like that like he does you know it it is very obvious to him that he's not getting the exact kind of treatment that he did back on the enterprise for example and but he recognizes the place that o'brien is coming from that o'brien i mean we see it's very significant that there is a scene of o'brien ordering you know his men to do different things and them very you know casually accepting and you know them you know they very much like and respect him and you know, Worf doesn't know why, but he's beginning to learn how to deal with, you know, engineer, nerdy engineer types, frankly. Yeah, there, I mean, yeah, I agree with you. And I think there's two levels to his story. I think, you know, partly it's a story of Worf starting to realize and learn, you know, know, know what it means to be in the command track. Yeah. Right. Because he wasn't before. And, you know, so you have to deal with different types of people differently to get the best out of them. And then, of course, this is, like you said, it's a way for Worf to kind of be integrated into Deep Space Nine. O'Brien obviously has integrated well into Deep Space Nine. He I think Worf realizes that, you know, you know, Worf and O'Brien didn't necessarily hang out that much, even though Worf did deliver um, Molly. But, you know, they're they're connected that way. But I think that uh, it's a. It makes sense because I think that O'Brien actually likes Deep Space Nine more than the than the Enterprise. I don't know that Worf does or ever will. I don't know what you well, think about that. I mean, that's because but... I would say, you know, O'Bri- I would say part of the business of season three was the characters realizing that this has become home. So, yeah, season one O'Brien did not feel as comfortable on Deep Space Nine as season four O'Brien, but... It's been a few, you know, I would say, yes, season four. Yeah, it's been three years or whatever. Season four, O'Brien, you know, let's see what season seven Worf is like about DS9. He's going to be much more comfortable there. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's a nice place to leave leave the character in this episode. You know, and I like the fact, I like the way that they're integrating Worf into into the show. I think they do, they're doing a good job. It doesn't feel like there is an extra character who's just there for, you know, because, you know. Because the ratings were dropping or whatever. Yeah, we like to, you know, we like Michael Dorn. We want him to have a paycheck, you know. No, like he's actually they're finding things for him to do yeah which is nice yeah 
Um, yeah, I, th- I think that this is a good episode. I don't think it's a, you know, it's not a classic by any stretch of the imagination, but for the most part, it's enjoyable. And I think it's, it's a good sign that the show is not abandoning the character work that it's, it's been doing. And it's sort of, um, I think working really hard to take the characters, you know, in new directions as well. So yeah, good job show. Hooray. All right. Let's talk about uh, little green men. I can't tell if I like this episode or not. I can see that. Yeah. Like. I laughed at a bunch of it. It was very funny. It was certainly very different. On the other hand, I think I might hate it. So I'm not sure. <laughs> well, I'm here to get you through this. Thank you. Like, no, like, and I can't say, like, I didn't enjoy watching the rest of the episode. I like this episode a lot. I think it's one of those episodes that I can't watch more than once a year. I so. feel I can see that. But whenever I do watch it, it's it's a nice palate cleanser. It's a very different Ferengi episode than what we've seen before. You know, it is a little, it is a little goofier than Star Trek generally goes for. I think at and, the same time, it's a Ferengi episode, so it can. Yeah, and I do, I do like, you know, because the Ferengi episodes have not been my favorite, as as yeah. the, the listeners have known. You know, I, I don't generally like them very much, aside from uh, Family Business from, from well, last season. I like. I was going to say, I think part of the reason you don't like Ferengi episodes is because you don't like Nagus episodes. The that, non-Nagus that is, Ferengi episodes have been pretty decent. Actually, that's a good point. I think you're right. I think I don't like the Nagus very much. <laughs> um, I liked the parts of uh, the one with Pell that didn't involve the Nagus. I like Pell as a character. I love Moogie. Um, yeah, yeah. And... You know, this episode was not as annoying as a Nagus episode is. Yeah, I think there's something about his performance as the Nagus, Wallace Shawn, that I just don't, I don't know. Something yeah. about it rubs me the wrong way. But but anyway, we don't need to talk about the Nagus. The Nagus will be back at some point. Oh, have God. A I'm sorry to say that to you. He's the Loaxana Troy of, of this show. But no, but we like Loaxana Troy. It's true. We do like Loaxana Troy. And if you are not a $5 a month patron, trekaboutshow.com slash, sorry, Patreon.com slash show. If you give us $5 a month, we will send you one of our pa- – actually, we'll send you all of our patron specials, one of which we did on La Waxana Troy. Wow. A little plug there. Uh, we don't have ads, so, you know. Yeah, I think that Little Green Man is a very slight episode. I don't know that it's about anything else than very much what it is about. I yeah. don't think there's a lot of subtext going on here. Um, that said, it's very well written. It's very well acted. I think it gives Quark a chance to judge humans in a fun way. I was going to say, you know, there were some parts that were a little on the nose, like, you use nuclear weapons, you smoke toxic things, what are you humans doing? <laughs> They'll buy poison, they'll <laughs> buy anything. Uh, but yeah, I was say, I love that they took, but they took that from a, you know, they took that it, because, you know, again, most shows would use the very you know, heavy-handed environmentalist message or whatever, you know, right. from this. And here, you know... Well, it is, it is... That's a good point. It is very true to the character of Quark. Yeah. You know, yeah, Rom is kind of horrified by it, you know. But 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 for the most part, Quark's just kind of like, what the fuck is wrong with these people? Like, why are they doing this? They're poisoning yeah. their own planet? Like, this is nuts. Like, but he doesn't really take it any further than because, that. Because, you know, he takes it as a sign of gullibility. He, he, you know, he sees them, you know, he sees them buying cigarettes and he thinks, oh my God, these guys are the ultimate suckers. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, but it, but it isn't, I think it works too. I mean, it could be a little too on the nose, except for the fact that they're there in the first place because of Quark's greed. And so, you know, I think the episode is trying to make a juxtaposition about the 
non-self-awareness of Quark in a way. Yeah. You know, because he thinks that he's so much smarter than the humans in the 20th century, whereas 24th century humans look at a Ferengi like Quark and roll their eyes and say that he is what they used to be like. Uh, yeah. And now Quark is meeting what the humans he's met <laughs> have said to him, and he thinks, geez, these people are stupid. But they're kind of the same in a sense. I mean, the whole reason this happens is because Quark is trying to smuggle something. Well, the whole reason this happens is because Quark screwed his cousin off and you know the yes. cousin is getting revenge that too so <laughs> i think it's like there maybe it's a little deeper than i thought it was initially but i don't think it's something that the episode spends a lot of time no dealing with it's a it's a light comedy episode that has a couple things to think about i would say then a deep episode with funny bits yes i would agree with that and it is it is very funny i, I mean, like <laughs> i love that we hear these bits you know these little things about the ferengi afterlife now you know the uh the, the the divine treasury and you know he's like oh my god we're in we're in the other place no we're not in the vault of destitution the bar's making a profit it's like this implication that like if you're in the red it's like mortal sin on your soul you know i like that uh, yeah like there's these you know cute moments like that which um yeah i mean i do like the fact that that the episode you know it is a roswell episode I mean, oh yeah you know, they, they, they name check it you know that's that's the I mean, the, this episode in a lot of ways is a bunch of referential jokes to other shit that was like, this is them doing an X-Files thing, you know, in some It's them ways. doing an X-Files thing. It's them doing kind of a, you know, a, a World War Two kind of thing. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I love the little callback to Gabriel Bell, you know, and they take it as a, you know, well, they all look alike, you know, I love, I, I have to say, I've tried to find a place to mention this. I absolutely love the consistency that they every single Ferengi pronounces it human. Like I don't know why I find that so funny, but except for he doesn't pronounce it that way in the root beer conversation with Garrick. Hmm. Interesting. Probably because that little joke would have Deflated distracted it. from the seriousness of that that conversation. Yeah, that is true. But I think that that I, I don't know the human thing is like whatever. I I, I I just think it's you know it's not something that the series makes a huge deal of but it's it's a consistent Ferengi thing that I just find fun like a little quirk I find it funny well I, I do like I mean we have to say Armin Shimmerman is very good in this episode I oh, think yeah. they're all very good in this episode but but you know he does pronounce human with a little less emphasis than we have seen Ferengi in the past yeah you know so it, it's a little underplayed which I appreciate and, and, something and very... he tends to use it more when he's being derisive too yes there I don't know there's something very there's something very understated about this episode at the same time as it's being kind of serious. Like, do you know what I mean? Because this is, I mean, it's an interesting, it's an interesting episode in the way that it's structured because aside from the beginning and the end, we have no scenes on deep space nine. We have no B plot. We don't see any of the other characters really for more than a couple of minutes. You know, at the very beginning of the episode, they seem to get all of their contractual obligations out of yeah. the way by showing, you know, Bashir and Dax and Worf and Cisco. Yeah, they got their paycheck, and they, but they went home early. Yeah, like they don't, you know, I mean, it's a cute little setup for, I think one of the I, things, I really like the beginning setup. Well, I think that one of the things that I like about Little Green Men is its consistency. And I think that this is Deep Space Nine's strong suit in general, is that it takes the ideas of Star Trek and it even takes the ideas that the show has, because I think at this point we can say something about what kind of Star Trek show Deep Space Nine is. Mm. 
and it has developed its own ideas it has developed its own philosophies and it has developed its own its own viewpoint frankly and i think that this episode is a really strong example of a ferengi episode where they have done the hard work of you know essentially rebuilding the ferengi from yeah. the, the joke that they were on the next generation and yes most of the ferengi episodes are comedies but i don't feel like we're supposed to be laughing at the Ferengi. Yeah. I think they're not, you know, the, 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 we're laughing at their foibles just as we laugh at some of the foibles of all of the characters. Quark himself is a broad comic character who is played very broadly comic, but at the end of the so day... So is the, Rom, but yeah, also... We, of course. But we like Rom. The joke isn't that the Ferengi are path- so pathetic that they're the laughing stock of the galaxy. I mean, they're, they're, this is an episode... Next Generation Ferengi had no dignity, but of all the things we can say about Quark is he has dignity. And Next Generation Ferengi had no personalities. I mean, yeah. and I think we've talked about this a little bit, where Deep Space Nine is the Star Trek show that allows alien characters yeah. to have their own personalities yeah, in yeah, a yeah. sense. And I think that, you know, we have had, you know, one main cast member who's a, well, not cast member, who's a Ferengi, because that would be very, very strange, because the Ferengi aren't real. Uh, main character, that's a Ferengi. And we also have two recurring characters. We have Rom and we have Nog. And all three of them are very different. Yeah. You know, Rom is, yes, he has played a little for laughs. But at the same time, he's a very... Well, he's played as somebody who is very socially awkward, but starting to... The show is starting to deal with his social awkwardness and his, you know, and giving him more... You know, he he is growing into more of a backbone as the episodes go on. Yeah, yeah. And... and this is an episode that I mean we'll talk about Nog because I think the Nog stuff in the episode is a little bit important, but it's it's interesting that the episode is so consistently structured to really set up the beginning in you know it sets you right in the Frankie mindset. Nog is going off to Starfleet he, Academy. I love that little custom. Yeah, he's selling his stuff. <laughs> he has a garage sale, but like it, it, it's great because it has, it's it's at once this you know beautiful symbolic of you know i he's leaving his childhood toys and possessions behind you know he's becoming a man and he's you know about to you know he's starting the slate clean at the same time he's making some money doing it and he's trying to roll call of his friends yeah yeah exactly and i think you know it's it's and it's i mean it's also a smart way to get all of the characters in the episode yes. because of course that this is a very well written episode it's a very well yeah. constructed episode and as i'm talking about it i'm realizing how well yeah. constructed it is i mean i you know, the the way the different characters have reactions to Nog, like Kira doesn't really seem to, I don't, you know, she barely says goodbye to him as does Dax, but then, you know, you have Bashir gives him and, and O'Brien give him this present, you know, and of course, Jake, that's a very touching, you know. That is, yeah. And I think that that's a, that's a, a, a scene that the show has earned, you know, yes. I think it's, it's not. It has nothing to do with the fact that Jake is human and Rom is a Ferengi at that point. You know, they're yes. just two friends that are saying goodbye to each other. Uh, uh, and they're it, not quite sure how to say goodbye to each other. Yeah, they're, they're, I mean, frankly, they're, you know, but, you know, and, and and it's reminding me of my own when I went away to college and, you know, saying goodbye to some of my own friends and being at that point where, you know, are these relationships going to continue? You know, we're going to be at such different places. Is that going to change, you know? I I mean I think that Nog and Jake's friendship at this point has become deep enough that you know distance is not going to be a huge problem with them. But at and the if you if you can believe the visitor, they do maintain some sort of friendship even into you know their old age. Yeah, of course. Um, and frankly, given a better life situation for Jake, which the visitor implies is what's really going to happen. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, I I don't see why they wouldn't you know keep up their friendship. 
Yeah, no, I think so. And and that's a really nice – again, the fact that you say you know this doesn't have anything to do with them being human or Ferengi at this point. But at the same time, it does because their entire friendship has been about getting over that difference. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it, this is really showing that they have finally gotten over that difference. That they have such a touching – goodbye at the end you know makes it clear that they have transcended it yeah well and i also think too that that in that same way i think that little exchange between o'brien and Worf is is very telling because yeah. you know Worf is the new person there Worf has not had the history with nog Worf has not yeah, had yeah, the history yeah. with all of these characters and he is dismissive of the fact that a Fer- that nog of ferengi wants to go to starfleet academy and yeah. again o'brien as in starship down is the one who can talk bluntly to him and say like i'm sure people said that about yeah. you like it makes worth think and then of course he's more open to the idea of i think that there's yeah and at this point you know cl- you know a klingon on the bridge of a you know of a starship is unusual but it's not like a crazy thing in a in when Nog is Worf's age, it may not be a crazy thing for, you know, a Ferengi to be in that position. I, absolutely, yeah. And I think that, that one of the things that I think the show is starting to do and, you know, with with uh, uh, Starship Down where, where Worf was starting to learn how to deal with different types of people in yeah. a command situation and he's starting to have to think a little bit more. And, you know, not to say that Worf didn't think. He is a thought. He's, he may be too thoughtful, yes. I think, sometimes. But... Uh, he in this episode and in Starship Down, he is learning new things. He's learning yeah. to be a bit more expansive. You know, well, once- stuff he hasn't had to think about. You know, again, every single person on the Enterprise is vetted by Starfleet. You know, a Ferengi has. You know, Worf is not used to seeing Ferengi as being vetted by Starfleet, and frankly, he's not used to be there being people who don't really have anything to do with anything. You know, well, it's one of those things where. You you would never have that sort of scene on TNG. You know, yeah. T, we've talked about this a little bit, and I wouldn't say some people have called you know sort of criticized TNG for being bloodless. I don't agree with that, and I think that you would not agree with that no. either. But it definitely is a little antiseptic. It's a little precious sometimes. We'll put it this way: the the outsider of from Starfleet was Guinan. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, it, nobody has a goddamn problem with Guinan. You know, she's awesome, but. And so in this, you know, this, I mean, this... I, yeah, I would say that it's, it's soft and fuzzy bloodless. I wouldn't say that because Guinan is certainly a strong, tough, awesome character. Um, but yeah, they, they definitely, it, it's, Worf has a lot of things that I would say are unquestioned. You well, know? because one, I think what's, what's interesting about that opening scene is how everybody is just jumping in feet first to this. It's a it's a lively place. It's a very sort of emotional, like yeah. loving place. Everyone is into it in a way that I don't think they would be in TNG. I think that they would respect the tradition. I think they would all attend. I don't think anyone would buy anything. Yeah. I don't, well, they don't have money. So I think that that was my question. But you know, Worf's buying the tooth sharpener, and you know, Dax makes so Bashir buys something. So the the hollow program, yeah, the, the porn hollow program. <laughs> Okay, Dax. Uh, 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 I think that after last week, she's just now making him uncomfortable because he did tell her about that fantasy in the runabout. Yeah, we did. We we gave that plot a little short shrift, but it was kind of nice. Yeah, that. that, that I mean, really, what's happened is you know we said, yeah, I used to have this weird fantasy about you. All right, I'm buying you porn. Like, right, <laughs> pretty much. That's the punchline. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and I think that it's nice that Worf is able to just kind of open yeah. up his mind a little bit and he finds something he likes. It's like the prune juice thing too. Like I love what like Worf 
decides he loves, you know, it, just these random saying a toothbrush and prune juice. Were you surprised that Odo showed up? Uh, in the best possible way, I would say. Uh, I didn't expect it, but it, it was great when he did. Yeah, he. It, it made total sense that he would, you know, especially given his, you know, the way he investigates things. Well, but... it's funny because the show, the show really plays it close to the vest, and and yeah. it misdirects Quark into thinking that Odo was going to stay behind to watch Morn, and it misdirects the audience into thinking that Quark, uh, that sorry, that Odo was going to stay behind yeah. to watch Morn. You know, like, and he doesn't, and it works really well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Morn! I know you hate Morn, but I don't hate Morn. You... I just I don't. I love Morn. I tolerate Morn. Quark tells Morn not to touch the Debo girls, but remember. You know, that, that's a very far cry from the quirk that had the contract that had the Debo girl give him favors yeah, or whatever. That's true, yeah. I am so glad that they seem to have realized what a b- bad note that line was. Yeah, that hasn't happened. That was the first season. <laughs> that, like, well, the, yeah, that was now. one of those. We all regret writing that line. <laughs> and I think, you know, it just realized something, too, about this episode is that, you know, Quark and Rom and Nog, well, maybe not Rom. I think Quark and Nog are kind of dismissive of, you know, the culture and the history and the sort of situation that they're in. They don't really consider the humans to be real people. Quark is having yeah. all these grandiose fantasies about becoming Emperor of Earth <laughs> and then, you know, flying back to the Ferengi homeworld and selling them warp drive. And then they're going to, like, spread across the galaxy and, you know, some sort of mercantilist paradise. Yeah. And, of course, that's all not going to happen. But... You know, it's it's interesting to me because I think, you know, maybe this episode, I, I don't know, maybe this is something I can ask you, but do you think that this episode is using Quark and Nog's dismissal of, you know, sort of the real circumstances and the, and the, and the nuances of, of the human culture and society of the 20th century in a way that's commenting on Star Trek's kind of dismissal of the nuances of the Ferengi? Hmm. That is a good question. I mean, again, I keep thinking about the whole, you know, the joke about Gabriel Bell, which, you know, we are told this is one of the defining moments of human history where the Bell riots, you know, this was something that caused the Fed, you know, that was the turning moment that eventually led to the Federation. It was one of the most important historical events. Somebody that they know extremely well happened to be at the focus of that event and, you know, the, the, you know, and Nog, who is much more sympathetic to human culture, is, you know, recognizes, and, and frankly, who has had dinner with, you know, Cisco many times, you know, recognizes him, but it's, yeah, it is dismissed as, oh, all humans look alike, you know, yeah, it, it it's, that's so weird, it looks a little like him, but, you know, it's not the weirdest thing. Right. Like, uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I would say that, I mean, again, it does show they're really, they're, takes on things again quark is you know letting his ambitions get away with him you know and to a ridiculous degree but yeah he doesn't think of this as real he thinks this is his moment of you know again quark believes in risk for opportunity he sees an opportunity yes the risk might be that the timeline changes irrevocably but look at the reward we can get nog's more conservative you know <laughs> rom is calling for his moogie for you know, right. ev- ev- eventually i mean that's what <laughs> that's the three of them all together yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, they, they show that in, in the ways in which, you know, the three Ferengi are sort of interacting with each other. And they're all very distinct. And, yeah. you know, especially when the humans don't exactly know what the Ferengi are saying. I mean, I we thought. We hear untranslated for English for the first time. And I like that, you know. Did you th- just call it for English? 
yeah. Okay. Um, you know, this, we haven't really had much talk about, you know, how do they, you know, the, sh- <laughs> the series, the, the franchise has always kind of alighted. Well, how does everybody talk? And this, I don't know, is this the first time that we actually get confirmation that there are translators? Well, we knew that there were universal translators. Oh, from the one with the uh, space Irish and the, uh, well, not only that, I mean, going back to um, the episode with Zephram Cochran from the original series huh. and the space lady. Yes, that's right. They have the uh, they make the device. Huh. I guess you're not a Trekkie yet, Richard. Cause you didn't remember that. I, I remember so. Little. I've just got a vast array of Star Trek knowledge, like just in the in my brain, like that I have to like retrieve at times like this. You need it. You need like a pressure you're, valve. You're never going to know you, as much about me as Star Trek. You wanted this podcast made just so you could have a safe place to like talk about Star Trek and just for your own sanity. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you would be in like a room somewhere and there would be like you know you'd be scrolling it a long time ago in a galaxy far far away and i'd be like eric that's star wars what the hell is wrong with you and you'll be like i'm just so upset and confused and i would stab you with a pencil you were number one you're writing in crayon i'd stab you with a crayon number two the crayon would break i'm fine with that i'd still stab you um yeah i think that that you know it's it's interesting because the universal translator stuff is yeah we've seen them before but this is the first time that we i think They've mentioned them before in TNG and stuff, but but you know I don't think that they really have established that they have them implanted in yeah. their head. Like that's a little strange. So hmm. I don't I don't know. I mean, well, it's just I mean they have to they have to have some sort of obstacle for them. Yeah, to overcome. I mean it was a nice little joke. If it was forty five minutes of Quark, Rom, and Nog figuring out how to get out of a room, that would yeah. not be very interesting. Well, so, but I mean, and that's the thing: the series, the show is very good at taking the initial situation and then spinning it out in oh, yeah. a few minutes. I mean, this this goes, you know, from they're just, you know, randomly stuck in a room to eventually they're being, you know, he's attempting to torture them, you yeah, know, they're, yeah. they're being heavily interrogated. Then we have this action sequence at the end. And I have a question. Okay. Can Odo turn into a car? Um... That's a good question. I mean, I, you know, assumedly skill is an issue here. Certainly, you know, the founder that they met in, you know, the search, for example, is more capable of turning than Odo may be. I would I would say that it would be much more difficult to do. We know that Odo can turn into a bird. Mm-hmm. But then again, you just need a knowledge of aerodynamics. You don't really need I mean, to hell, have make a heart and to make, you know, like, so yeah, he probably can, or at least changelings can, but I think yes. it's a lot more difficult because you actually need to know every single part of a car and how it works and be able to replicate it, per, you know, perfectly. Yeah, which is why I say, you know, maybe Odo personally can't, but, you know, given the... You know that the you know the, the the founders that we've met have implied that they you know they're much more advanced than he is because you know obviously they have more of a tradition to draw you know draw from. I mean, just again, wait until the seventh season when it's revealed that the Defiant is actually a changeling. Well, that was going <laughs> to be my other question: like, could they be a starship? I, I I don't know. I don't know, and I think that they kind of implied that way back in the third season. I think at some point where you know the changeling was kind of in there in the Alpha Quadrant somewhere and. and Remember there was a, I forget what episode it was, but there was an episode where a changeling. Oh, I think it was the episode Heart of Stone with with Kira and Odo, and and they were chasing. Oh yeah, they were chasing a ship. Oh yeah, and then the ship disappeared, and the implication was that the yeah. ship was the changeling. Huh. I don't know. Maybe it is possible. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I, I, I think this is a fun episode. Did, did you come around on it? I was going to say, you know, no, it's not like I, I, I guess I, I am finding it was a little deeper than I thought it might have been. And, you know, I did have a fun with it, but I still don't think it would be one of the all-time classic DS9 episodes. But It's to, what I always remember. It's very I, distinctive. Well, especially because visually it is so distinct. I mean, it takes place in a place we've never seen another episode taking place in. So that alone is you know, going to set it apart. Yeah. And I also, I mean, I do, I do appreciate the fact, you know, maybe my final point before we wrap this episode up is, you know, that the episode doesn't really treat the, the, you know, army base people with any sort of real, like they, they, you know, like, yeah, you've got the doctor and you have his nurse girlfriend that are sort of like, they're real people and they help them escape and stuff. But yeah, for the most part, it's kind of almost treated. I mean, even they like a TV show, those two. Yeah. They felt like they were taken all taken out of a screwball forties movie, especially the, you know, the main couple. Yeah, so I kind of like that. I think that there's a lot of different layers here. Like that part where, like, well, you know, how what was the excuse? Well, you had a mind ray, you know, and like that. That it's very goofy, but you know, it's the kind of a, it's the kind of show that can still go goofy, which yeah. I think I do like, even as serious as DS9 is. And this is frankly making me worried because you know we just had a light comedy episode and another episode which was not light but wasn't really meta plot e that much. So when they, uh, I worry shit's about to get real. <laughs> you're giving me a really terrifying look uh well you yeah maybe things are gonna get really bad soon yeah like i feel this was them lulling me <laughs> oh we're just gonna be a fun little comedy show now oh what adventures is Quark gonna have this week all right the dominion kills everyone next week well for all of you out there that are watching deep space nine for the first time along with richard you have no idea what's about to happen for everyone else you're probably laughing right now <laughs> um all right well i think that's <laughs> it for this week okay i'm really excited to go forward good well if you have any thoughts on either one of the episodes that we just talked about please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at trekaboutshow.com as we said earlier, we have a Patreon, which is patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. We have three tiers for you, $1 a month, $5 a month, and $3 a month. And I set them in that order because why not? I don't believe in math. Oh, tiers, because we're sad that we don't have more patrons. We have quite a number. We do. And thank you to all They're our- They're tiers of joy. Thank you to all our, lo- all our loyal patrons. But we would like more. We love you more than the people who are not. No, I wouldn't Especially say that. Since I would we never have- say that. You would never say that. Especially since we have more plans. In the future, mysterious plans oh, that we cannot we, reveal yet, but maybe we, sometime in the near future. We've been scheduling stuff, listeners. You, um, you, you, we have a calendar. We wrote things in. Get ready for it. Uh, check us out on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. We are not on Pinterest, but we could be. Truckabout Show is our username on all three of those platforms. And as always, please leave us a positive iTunes review like mm-hmm. Rennie 42 who apparently lives in Canada hey. and or uses the Canadian iTunes. He makes his home in Canada. <laughs> Rennie 42 says track about, which is this podcast is an informative and just in case you didn't know is an informative and well-structured chat show that offers great insights into star Trek. You know, he's Canadian because he calls it a chat show. Aww. 
The hosts are knowledgeable and engaging with plenty of original ideas to add to the episodes. Their recent discussions about DS9 are a weekly must listen for any fan of the series. The best Star Trek podcast in the Federation. <gasps> oh my God, that's a really big comment compliment because there's like a lot of planets in the Federation. Our Vulcan podcasts are probably awful. They're in the Federation, Richard. Well, I, I'm just saying like, but yeah, Vulcan podcasts are pretty awful. Uh, We're a better podcast in the Federation than a Vulcan podcast. That's very illogical, Richard. I'm going to go off into a corner now and meditate quietly. <laughs> Tune in next week on Logic About when we talk about syllogisms for five hours. Yeah. Well, thank you, Renny42, for that very, very nice review. We do appreciate it. We uh, don't have nearly enough reviews outside of America. We don't have nearly enough reviews inside of America either, frankly. But if you live in Canada, if you live in the United Kingdom, if you live outside of the United States in any way, shape, or form... Then it must be really awesome to be able to go to the doctor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and probably not have hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans either. Um, America's terrible. But anyway, that's a different podcast. Uh, got a little... So tune into t- America is Terrible about, which is... Our- uh, so thank you very much, Renny42. And uh, if you would like to be as cool as him or her or her or him. Them. Them. What, what's the other one? Z. Z. And Zer. Zer. Um, please leave us a positive iTunes review, and we would appreciate it very much. Now I could go for dessert. Well, I have some peanut butter cups out in the kitchen. Aww. So while Richard goes get peanut butter cups, we'll tell you next week's episodes, which are the Sword of Kalas. Yep, more Klingon episodes. Now the wharf is here. Oh, rough word. And our man Bashir. Oh, Bashir, Bashir. These are great peanut butter cups. Richard's eating peanut butter cups. Yum, yum, yum. Talk to you later.